What's up, everybody? Joe Bonamassa here with another exciting episode of Live from Nerdville. Today, my special guest is my friend and yours, five-time Grammy Award winner, blues icon, Americana icon, overall nice guy, my friend and yours, Mr. Kev Mo. Thank you for doing this. Uh, thank you, Joe. Thank you for having, having me. Well, you know, um, we've been we've been friends for a long time, and uh, recently we've been writing a lot uh, for our friend uh, Eric Gales, and you know we're doing a, a record with him in the fall. And um, one of the things I've always, you know, always said about the true great singers is, even if you're making a demo or if you're making a record, there's something about that voice that's larger than the track. And when I when I hear you sing, going back. 20 years when Michael Kaplan gave me a copy of the door mm. record, it was your voice is so large and so rich harmonically. When did you discover that, that you had a, a, you know, when you just opened your mouth and started to sing, you're like, Oh my God, I have, I have actually a real tone and can sing in pitch. Well, uh, I have tone. I don't know if I can sing in pitch, but I have, maybe I have a little tone. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it was, it was, Back when uh, I was playing with Papa John Creech in the 70s, Papa John from the Jefferson Starship. Yeah. And uh, our band was named Zulu. We backed him up and uh, we were rehearsing. And they go, Someone, one of you, somebody's got to sing. We don't have a man can sing. Right. So we all took a turn singing. <laughs> and I got picked to sing. So, you know, one of the things um, maybe a lot of people don't know about you, you were born in uh, Los Angeles, Compton, California. Born in Los Angeles, raised in Compton, California, which is just outside of L.A. And you were telling me the other day one of your first instruments. And, and as I interview more people, I, I've, I've been finding that, that all my favorite guitar players and singers all started on an instrument that I would never guess in a hundred tries. You started on a steel drum and an upright bass. I would have never guessed that. I started, I started on a steel drum. I didn't play upright, but the upright bass is a typo that was done in my first bio that never got corrected. Oh, okay. So and you I never played the, played the upright bass. I played the bass. When I said I played the the, 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 the bass steel drums, right. they were stood, I said they stood upright on the ground. Gotcha. And I, when you're taking his notes, he it turned into upright bass. Right. But it was like bass steel drums with these big, I think they used bass players now, but these big, five big cans. And um, uh, one had those three notes, four notes, about, you know, maybe an octave, and a quarter on the whole thing. Yeah. You know, and uh, I, I was, you stand there around all five drums and just go like a boom, 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 And so that was, that was the thing. And what kind of, were you collaborating with anybody? Was it like just, you were just coming up with melodies by yourself or was there like, was I was like 11 years old. Right. So, so um, what was happening is that I moved in this block, which I still live on now. I, wow. I, I still I own the house that we grew up in on that block, so I still, and that's my that's my LA home. Right. <laughs> so, um, but it was a guy down the street that made steel drums in in sixty, like sixty three. Wow. He was probably the only guy making steel American making steel drums in the old United States. Right. And he had learned from the from the Trinidadians. You know? Yeah. Uh, and so he had a steel band. 
And so when he saw the, uh, some of the kids in the neighborhood could play, were, were kind of musically inclined, he uh, put a band together. So we went around with this kid band playing steel drums. It's great. You know, one of the you know one of the things like I always say we like we all start somewhere. You know, everybody's got their own journey and their career path, and but we all start in our bedrooms, basically playing playing around with a guitar. When was the first time you were introduced to the guitar? What, how old were you? Uh, I was twelve. Mm -hmm. I had I had an uncle that played guitar. Right. Uh, Herm Wyatt. He lived in Cupertino, California, and he was kind of a folky kind of. From the Harry Belafonte kind of era, right? You know, Calypso, folky, uh, pop things, and uh, I went there for two weeks to spend time with him and my cousins. You know, mm -hmm. uh, he put the he said, I said, "Here, put the guitar in my hand and just start teaching me guitar." Nice. Was it acoustic or electric? Acoustic. It was acoustic. Nylon string acoustic, and he taught me how to play uh, finger pick, and how to play a song called Jamaica Farewell, and how to nice. finger. So that was my lesson for two weeks. My job was to learn how to play and play and finger pick Jamaica Farewell on the guitar. And I learned it in two weeks. So by the time I got back, it was I was playing the guitar, I was playing that song. And when I got back, I just begged my dad to get me a guitar. Took some begging too, because he didn't, you know. So eventually he took me, took me down to Sears and Roebuck <laughs> and got me a guitar. Was it a Silvertone? Yes, sir. That's right. I think I... <laughs> You know, my father got me my first guitar because he was tired of me stealing his. Like, he only had one, and he would do these weekend gigs. And I would steal his guitar, and he's like, all right, I got to get the boy his own guitar. So, so Santa brought me my guitar right around my fourth birthday. And they were, just, they were just hoping that would just assuage me enough to, like, stop, you know. But, you know, when did you know you were hooked on music? What, what age did you, like, you know, like... 12, 13, you're just going, man, I just can't stop playing this. I can't live another day without playing. Funny you should ask that, you know. Um, I never got hooked on music till I was, I didn't never look at it as being hooked. It was like I was always pulled in by my friends. Right. I did for the first probably 30 years of my life, I was never individually motivated. My first instrument, my before even for steel drums, I played trumpet in the school band, the fifth grade, the beginning band, and my mother made me join the band. Right. Then right. we moved, and I got rid of the trumpet, and I got kicked out of the band, the trumpet. So we moved to this other house on, on, on in Compton, and there's a steel band down the street. My friend, who's still my great friend today, Carlos County, he came and said, hey, man, check this out. And he started showing me steel drums. So I went in there, I'm playing the drums, and so, and then... When I got to high school, um, I was still playing steel drum at that time. And, but I wanted to be in the orchestra. And I met these two guys, uh, uh, Mickey and Lane. Mickey and Lane, uh, we were hanging out. And they played French horn right. in, in the marching band. And the band teacher, they said, why don't you come? I think, I think we could get you in the band, man, because they need another French horn player. So I went right. to there and asked, and he said, you ever play an instrument? I said, yeah, I played trumpet. I played trumpet in this. In the, in school, he put the French horn in my hand and put me in line in the marching band. <laughs> <That's great. laughs> and I was in the marching band, and uh, so we all all of us were sophomores in high school, and we and we came through came up in the band. So by the time the um, by the time the school was in in, I was first French horn, 
and I was in the Compton Youth Symphony Orchestra. Wow. My band, you know. Um, now, that doesn't say I wasn't great. It's just the competition wasn't that still. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Do you, still, do, do you still maintain the sight reading skills after all uh, this time? No, I never was a great sight reader. And I do have a trumpet and I have a French horn stash back there. Do you, you ever, do you ever break that out and go? Yeah, I do. Nice. Well, I do break it out. It's, it's back there. <laughs> I still, I still have my great grandfather's trumpet. I started on trumpet. My grandfather tried to teach me how to play trumpet, and it was a futile exercise, especially in competition with my father's Gibson SG and this big loud A chord. Every once in a while, I try to get the trumpet out and get any kind of sound on it. It's like a 1920s Vega. And it, it's just, it's, it's like watching me play the drums or bass or anything. I, I, unfortunately, I've only stumbled upon one thing I'm good at in my life, and it's playing guitar. <laughs> um, so, you know, you're like being the reluctant superstar, budding superstar at that point, how does it go from, like, being in the marching band to hanging out with guys like, you know, you know, like you mentioned Papa John Creech and all those people that were in that LA scene back in the seventies. How did, how did, how do you make that leap going? All right, I'm actually well, going to do this and make a run at it. I'll tell you that here's how it's happened. Uh, my friend, I was now, now, now all the whole time I'm playing the venture, I'm playing guitar. I have a guitar now. Right. Home. I have a silver tone guitar, but not too many people know this, you know, mm -hmm. so I'm playing at home and I'm pulling out every now and then everybody's laughing at me. So in my senior year in high school, a bunch of guys from the from the orchestra, the band, the marching band, wanted to start a cover band. Right. So the so the one of the trombone players played bass, and the, and the saxophone player played a little piano, and another one of the other trombone players played a piano. And so we had a drummer in the band. So out of the out of that band, we formed a cover band. Mm -hmm. Stanley played guitar in the jazz band. And uh, he was my teacher because uh, I couldn't get guitar lessons because my mother couldn't afford them. So he would teach me the guitar while I was there. Right. So, so they needed another guitar player. And so they asked me to play guitar. So we just, um, we, we uh, Stanley had two guitars. He had an electric guitar because daddy bought him like a new, a Guild Starfire or something. So right. he had these old Tysco things. So I played the Tysco and we both plugged into the, the one amp like we did. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, cover band. We start playing cover songs, and they would show me. They would show me the parts as the songs progress, and right. told me the part to play because I had enough facility on the guitar to mimic whatever they told me what to do. And what kind of songs were you playing? Was it like current stuff? Yeah. Was it blues? Was Bucky it Broadway? You know stuff. Mm -hmm. we're playing Motown. We we're playing Earth Wind. I'm, I'm in the Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Uh, we were playing uh, uh, Expressway. We were playing Sam and Dave. Uh, we were playing um, basically a dance band, a cover band that could just play dances. Right. Temptations and. And how was um, how was like you know the scene back then? Was there a lot of gigs for you know cover band? Because you know like now in L.A., you know it's always been this this you know this pay to play, and it's 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 a real struggle. You know, I mean, was there was there paying gigs? Back in those well, days. Well, we in that in that band we played we played um dances. Right. Where'd you go? I lose you there. You still there? I'm still here. I can I can't see you, but I know you're there. Um at that point it was um 
we played we played cover bands. We played dances, like when schools had dances or people had dances that they privately privately uh, funded or promoted because we were all underage. We couldn't play in clubs. And and that band, that band right there morphed into a band that happened after high schools. And that band, that band became the, the band that played with Papa John Creeps, Zulu, you know? And, and uh, so they, they just took me with them. They would always keep calling me. I was trying to be an architectural draftsman, but, you know, and I stopped playing the guitar for a year after high school. And and all I did was um, um, I'm trying to find you here. Um, Scott's there. Maybe give me give me some technical advice here, anytime. Um, so 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 that band became the band of, that played with Papa John Creech. You still there? Yeah. So we were rehearsing down in L.A. on Adams because now we're a struggling band. We got no gigs, and we're starting to play little club gigs, you know, and uh, some kind of way. I had bought a, 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 a one of those a PA systems. Was it a Fender? The one that Vocal Master. Oh, the Sure Vocal Master. Sure. I had a Sure. I, I managed to buy a Sure Vocal Master. Right. And so the, you know when you have a when you have a Vocal Master, you you can get gigs because nobody has a PA, and you can play guitar and you got a PA. It's like, hey, you want to play with us? Hey, bring your PA, man. <laughs> Right. You, you've now been drafted as the singer, the front man, and the provider of the PA at that point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we were doing that. And one day, we were rehearsing on Adams Boulevard, and it was right next door to a, a soul food place called the Jet Set Cafe, which has some really good soul food, by the way. We're in there rehearsing, and who walks by the studio but Papa John Creech, uh, Miles Grayson and Roger Hamilton Spots. Uh, uh, Miles Grayson was the producer and piano player of, of, who was making an album with Papa John. And and they were going to get dinner or lunch, a late lunch, I should say. And we were in a rehearsing and they came in to see who was playing. Right. And 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 a month later, I was playing on Papa John Creature's album <laughs> over the studios in Hollywood. Now I read that you were on you were on four of his albums. Yeah, mm -hmm. and you and you and you you actually got your first gold record from one of those songs that you wrote with him. Yeah, it was on. A, um, there was a song that went on the Red Octopus album called uh, uh, the Jefferson Starship album yeah. called Red Octopus, and it was, and it was an instrumental called Get Fiddler. Right, right. So at that point, when you get your first gold record from a song that you wrote. Is as reluctant as you were at the time to be like, ah, I'm going to go be, you know, an architect, and you know, like you going, I got a gold record. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm good at this. You know, people are noticing me, and 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 people are like, you know, seeking you out because there's a lot of people that that, you know, are 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 constantly working, you know, to try to get noticed. But you just you have that. What are they? It's it's called star power. You know, people <laughs> want to work with you. So, you know, like, so at that point in time, you're working with John, Papa John Creech and you get a record deal in 1979. With, yeah, after, at, the, at the end of that decade, I get a record deal. You get a, you get a record deal. And, and the, your, first, your first solo album was released 1980. It's called Rainmaker on the infamous Casablanca Records. Tell me about that experience being in the record business, 1979, 1980, major label, because there are so many questions I have about Casablanca and the way they operated. And, and it was, to me, 
the the archetype of of bloated record company, you know, <laughs> goodness that we all know and love, and and it was and it was right in the right in the the prime time. So tell me about your experience. Well, um, what happened was, um, as um, as time moved on, um, experiences kept coming to me. Um, what led up to the Casablanca deal was somewhere around 1977. I was approached by a, a, a gentleman named Chuck Chomel, and he wanted me to do some demos with him. He wanted me to help him put some demos together, and um, we went one night. Uh, he was an engineer, second engineer at at A and M Studios. So one night he said, "Come to the studio about midnight. <laughs> Bring your guitar, you know," and. Uh, we snuck in the band I was in that time was called um God, what's the name of that band? Jesus Christ. It was a cover band that someone had drafted me into. I'm all, I'm all, I have Joe, I don't have much ambition at all. <laughs> you know You've been all, drafted all, into all drafted. these bands at this point. Yeah. I'm on the draft this band. This kid who was like about 18, now I'm 27 years old at the time, 26 or something. He calls me and goes, Hey, I'm putting a band together, man. You want to be in it? I'm, I'm, and I think I had a day job at the time. He said, I said, no, nah, I don't know, man. I don't really want to be in a cover band. And then, then like a day later, he called me back and said, hey, man, you going to be in the band or what? <laughs> God punked me. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, and he was, so, he was so determined. I said, okay, I'll be in the band. So then we started doing Army bases and, uh, and playing in that band. That's how I got the attention of uh, Chuck. And he stopped me. I was walking in front of Ocean, in front of on La Brea, in front of the AM studios. And he was out there. And he said, Hey man, you gotta play guitar, right? Use that guy, right? And, and he said, Okay. And so we went in the studio and we just cut and he kind of auditioned me there. And I helped him become the demo guy at AM. Right. Because I could I could go in and I could like tell all the band guys what to play. I could put a band together and I could like and I didn't I know I always knew I could do it, but no one ever asked me to do it. You know? Right. So I became kind of like the um, co-producer, arranger of all these demos. And I was working at that. Now I'm now I'm in Studio B, one of the best studios in town, at almost three to four days a week doing demos. Wow. I'm getting to play, mix. I'm learning about the board. I'm learning about like, you know, gear mixing because i was i was there for every session we do the sessions i'd write the charts come in with the charts i'd call the musicians and then I, and i would uh be there and i had to i had to, I had to make sure i had a plan because we had to cut two songs and every at least two songs in three hour session every day and then the next day we would do overdubs and the next day we would mix right so that was my school of making records because at the same time there was all these people walking through the studio all the time like you know uh, Paulino da Costa, Ray Parker Jr., uh, Larry Carlton, Lionel Richie, Gladys Knight. There was always stars all over the place. Uh, um, Johnny Mathis, uh, uh, what's this other guy? Uh, um, you know, Frankie Valley. You name it. You see him walking in the halls, going to get coffee. You know. Oh yeah, I mean, like you know, A and M, and which yeah. is now which is now called Henson. Yes. Henson Studios. I mean that that room. I mean, along with Capitol East West. And, you know, I mean, it's like in Los Angeles, that that was the studio. I mean, that was you, everything from rock and roll to, to you know, 
to to bebop was cut there and you know like so when you were how did you get the how did you get the record deal how did you get the um how did you get the attention of like neil bogart and and all the all those people what happened was the record deal um i had a um Ooh, um, you, I'm, I'm glad you asked me this question because I'm, I'm regurgitating all this stuff now. <laughs> so, I started writing songs like in 77 while I was delivering flowers for Leo's Flower Shop in West Hollywood. And uh, which, which sat right near where the Beverly Center is now. They tore down Leo's Flower Shop to build the Beverly Center. Um, Poor Leo, you know. <laughs> <laughs> He's just trying to make a, just trying to make an honest living. They just moved down the street, you know. All I mean, right, we're still there. But um, so I'm riding around in the van, delivering flowers, and I'm listening to nothing but country music. You know, KLAC on the left side of the AM dial, and I, and I'm listening to all these lyrics and listening to like, wow, man, these people really know how to write songs. Yeah. I don't know if I ever want to be a country guy, but damn, these songs are good. You know, so I started writing songs on my own, and um, a guy once a guy out down the hall. His name is Patrick Shepard. He was down the hall. I had an apartment on Gramercy Place, um, right off Hollywood Boulevard. And uh, he said, "Hey man, you play guitar, man. Let's write some songs." He was from Jamaica, and he had a he lived with his girlfriend down the hall. So we started writing songs, and I wrote this song with him called Rainmaker. You know, and and so. Um, it's like, uh, that's where it started. That's, and that's the song we cut when I went to that scab session and snuck in A&M in the middle of the night. Right, to right. Off the card, yeah. Yeah. So now I become this guy's partner in this demo uh, schedule. And we're working there. And we worked there for about, about three years, like constantly. And through that, I managed to get myself a publishing deal at Irving Elmo, which is the company we're working for. Right. I started writing and I got a deal. And out of that, I decided I wanted to do a uh, showcase because people were doing showcases that were those that play to play stuff. And um, I did one. I paid for it myself. And I did it at a place in Venice Beach. It's right at the end of Windward Avenue. Um, and so probably all my friends came, probably 50 people came. And at the end of the night, um, uh, at the end of the night, uh, I had I owed the I owed the uh, the club 150 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> you know? so, Things so, that never change in Los Angeles. <laughs> Things never change. Yeah. So so um, there I am. But I had a friend in the audience. Name is Chris Bennett, who was a dear friend, and she was I still know her today. She lives in Palm Springs, and she had been working with with um, uh, this guy named Steve Vidal as a publisher over at um, Casablanca. And we were doing publishing demos. We were doing publishing demos with him for all his writers. And we were doing publishing demos for Donna Summer. Right. Like, constantly there. So um, so I, uh, um, she came to the showcase. And she had just got a royalty check. because She had written a few songs around albums. And albums were selling good. She said, I want, I want to pay for a demo for you. You know? <laughs> nice. And she said, I got $2,000 to burn. So um, we went to a studio, and I got my guys together. We cut a demo, and she took it to Casablanca, and I got a record deal. Thank you, Donna Summer. <laughs> <laughs>
No, Donna Summer. Chris did. Donna Summer did. Oh, yeah, right, right. Chris started, but Donna Summer was, but they had, they kind of knew about me. And um, so I got that record deal. I made a shitty-ass record. <laughs> <laughs> because, not because I wasn't capable of making a good one. I just thought, you know, I thought now that I had a, I, I fell for the old L.A. Okie dope. I didn't keep the people that were around me that were like my my people, my support systems. Right. And I got studio guys. Right. And a, and a producer that was supposedly, you know, experienced and all that stuff. You know what I mean? And and I just made a, you know, it was bad. It was really bad. And, and I had been like a, playing clubs a lot during that time. So I was always hoarse. You know, playing a club with a loud band, no monitors, and uh, and it, right before that album, I ended up having to get have vocal surgery. Ah, you know, and so that was '79. So I'm making the I'm, I'm got the break in my life. Now I got vocal surgery. Now I'm having to recover from a vocal operation. Right. Wow, that's isn't that convenient. So nonetheless, the whole thing imploded. But that failure you know, was the reason I am get to do what I do now, you know. And uh, and what's great about, the greatest thing about that record is the guy that mixed my record was a guy named Barney Perkins, who was passed on now. I didn't know at the time, he's one of the best mixers in L.A. Right. You know, you ever listen to those Anita Baker records? Yeah. Yeah, he mixed all that stuff, you know. And I got to stand behind him, watching him mix my record, you know? And he let me uh, be involved in it, and I, and I was like, wow. So that was like my university, that was my college, that record. That's where I went to school, making that record that flopped. You, you know, know? I, I, had, I had a similar experience when I was a kid. I worked with uh, Tom Dowd and oh. on my first solo album. And, and I did it for, we, we were label mates at one point. Uh, we were both signed to OK Records, a.k.a. Sony Music. Yeah. And Tom Dowd did, did my first, um, first album. And it was the same thing. I mean, I, I listened to myself sing back then, and I'm like, oh, my God, how did I even get past Go, let alone get a record deal and everything? Mm -hmm. And I, it was one of those experiences for me where I learned, I had, you know, from Tom, I got a college education on first thing, what to do, and most importantly, what not to do, you know, and, and luckily I survived that experience to kind of come out the other side going, okay, now I have some, some perspective, I know what to do, who to hire, what not to, what not to do, what, you know, what avenues not to go down. Yeah. So you, there was a, there was a gap in your career before between the, the Casablanca experience and, and when you, you came out in 94 as Keb Mo and, and won your first Grammy. In that time, like, what, what were you thinking? Were you, were you just, I'm, I'm, I don't want to do this anymore? Or was it, was it one of those kind of things where you just go, I'm going to regroup and really focus on who I want to be as an artist? That's assuming I was, I was that together, which I wasn't. <laughs> right. <laughs> Here's what happened. It's early 80s now. It's like 81, 82, 83. By then, now I'm married and I got a wife. You know? Mm -hmm. um, so, and after that record with Casablanca, no gigs. No one called me. All my friends were pissed up because they didn't, pay out, they didn't play on the record. Right. You know? And I was just like, 
shit out of luck working a gig, delivering the envelopes. So um, once again, the phone rang. <laughs> My friend Spencer Bean said, hey, man, I'm going out of town. And uh, I got this two-week gig over in Marla's Memory Lane. And uh, it's a blues band. It's two nights. It's Monday night. Would you, would you just go cover me, cover it till I get back from Atlanta? I'll be gone two weeks. I said, okay, because we, we did a lot of uh, gig swapping. Right. And he actually took my place when I left the Papa John Creech band. Right. Know? So we, were, we did a lot of, you know, co I'll cover you, you cover me. We had yes. So, um, so he gave me that gig for two weeks. He went to Atlanta and he never came back. <laughs> <laughs> and so now I got this gig. Now, now, I, keep in mind, I got no gigs. Yeah, you know? right. So now I got this gig on Monday night at Marlowe's Memory Lane with a blues band. Yes. <laughs> now, why, does, why, 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 why does blues always happen on a Monday night? I can never understand it. It's the hardest night to draw people, you know, and then they go, well, like, blues, doesn't, blues doesn't draw a crowd. It's like, well, give us a Friday. It's you know? the blues. That's why. Yeah, it's like it's like it's like give us a Friday, give us a chance. You know, <laughs> blues always takes the scraps. You know. Yeah, so right. Anyway, so anyway, I, I I got this band. I played. I played in this band for two years. Now, <clears throat> let me tell you who's in this band. Uh, <clears throat> there's a guy named Kenny, a jazz drummer named Kenny on there, uh, and then there's a the bass player was a guy named Michael Sochet. And then, uh, but there were people always coming through the band. But the guy that played guitar, his name, we called him Charlie Tuna. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Charlie Tuna was the blues guy around L.A. That's why he was called to be in this band. There was no keyboard player at first. I was the, it was just a two-guitar, bass, and drum band. Right. So I was a rhythm guitar, of course. And Charlie Tuna was a freaking rock star. You know? His name is Charles Dennis, who went on after that. Play with BB King till till his till his till he passed, you know. Charlie, right? Yeah, I remember Charles. Him. Charles yeah, I studied under Charles Dennis. Wow, he was my mentor, you know, and uh, so that's where I learned the blues. And the guy that started the band was named the guy named Monk Higgins, who was a producer and produced Bobby Blue Band Records, and 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 they and they they just grabbed me. And and put me in the blues because like I come playing, I got my uh, my guitar, my amp, I got my effects. You know, I had been to uh, GIT Guitar Institute, uh, Technology Studies, we studied with Joe DiOrio, you know, and uh, I had been on sessions, and I was a very methodical, clean player, you know. And so, first thing Monk did was goes like, mm, let me tell you, so you sound real pretty. <laughs> Not exactly a compliment. Yeah, like like I can show you on the guitar things. I want an example of something I would do. You know, you know, he would go like I should. He go, go, yeah. I would go. You know, I would. Right, you played all the. You played the full chords. Yeah. He's, he go, he go, that's real pretty. <laughs> but that's not, that's not the way it goes, you know? Right. So 
he put me back, and then I had I had as I had to start all over. Man, Keep, you understand, you know, my career is over. This this like um, Papa John Creech thing is over. The the record deal's over. Now all I got is a Monday Night Blues gig. Right. And then that bass who came through that band, a uh, uh, guy named Ron Kersey who wrote Disco Inferno, was a keyboard player for a while. Gerald Albright was the bass player for a while. You know Gerald Albright, the sax player? Yeah. He was the bass player in the band <laughs> for a while. You know, and it was all people who were just playing around town. And, and Billy Preston would come down to sit in. You know, um, uh, Pee Wee Creighton, Albert Collins came down there one night. Yeah. Big Joe Turner came down, would come down to this Monday night. This was a kind of a celebrity Monday night blues band. Yeah, and it was it, it would track all of the cats that were like you know because right. Albert Collins was a LA guy you know yeah. even though he's born in Houston but it, you know all those guys were around you know and that was that was the hang. Yeah, and some unknowns that were amazing. You know what I mean? Some you know people that got him and so I, Bobby McClure was from St. Louis and he had had some success you know playing the blues and he was out there. Uh, Vernon Garrett was would come by who a guy that I was I played with earlier. Um, my earlier years, um, I think I played with him, I played with him afterwards. Yeah, in his band. But um, I was playing this band, and I was going, literally going to school, like just like I went to school to Casablanca, making that record, and at A and M, you know, right. being in the studio. Now I'm going to school, and I got all the real cats around me. So, I by this time I'm going like my pop career is over. Whatever I was going to be. Because I had had every opportunity to be that. Right. I had been around. I had been on sessions. And I feel like I had constantly blown it every time I got a shot. So I, by that time, I'm going, okay, well, I guess maybe the same for me. But it's been a good run. And I'm trying to figure out what to do. But I couldn't really quit. And that's when I realized I was hooked on it. Right. You wake up in the morning going, I really don't want to do this today. But I can't live with myself if I don't. Yeah. And I just kept going. So now I start going backwards in the blues. Now I'm listening. I start putting my BB King records out and listening to Charlie play and what he's doing. And I just started to dissect BB King because nobody was clapping on my solos. You know, right. Charlie would raise the roof, but no one was really doing anything when I. <laughs> Nobody's giving me any love for the solos. Right? Yeah, you know, <laughs> they throw me a bone a couple, two or three times a night, you know. Um, but so one, I remember one day, I said, I got to figure out what he's doing. I don't know how he's hitting that one note and making all the women scream. Right. No idea what that is. But I want to know how to do that. Live at the Regal. All those girls screaming for him. Yeah, that's what I want to know. I wanna, how do you do that? How do you hit one note and make the girls scream? <laughs> so um, I remember one day, I, so I, I put out records. I've been working for a while, and I just listened to my B.B. King and and they, they throw me a bone, and about, about two or three weeks later, they threw me a bone, and Bobby McClure was singing. And he, I, I hear a note, and Bobby McClure turned around like this. I'm going to tell you how he did. I, he did like, I'm playing, he went, he went, he went like. Great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, it's like, whoa, what? Oh. <laughs> you figured it out. Yeah, you know. So, and then I kept going backwards and backwards and studying you know, what was going on. And I, me and Charlie would get together during the week sometimes and play and stuff. And then I hit, I heard Big Bill Brunsey. Yeah. The country blues. That's when I lost my freaking mind. 
and I heard Robert Johnson, Johnson, you know, and I'm like, wait a minute, that's the real stuff there, right? You know, and when I when I when I when I heard the real stuff, and all of a sudden, I started like listening to that and studying that. Now this is about the mid '80s, okay? This is about four years later. So once again, you know, Mr. Non-Ambition, as I am, <laughs> uh, I got a call from a, because uh, I started doing my own gigs around town, too. I started, you know, doing the Brooklyn Hard Bells one night. I, you know, meanwhile, things, business picked up and I got some more gigs. Right. Now, are you under the, are you under the, uh, the moniker of, of, of Kev Mo at this point? Are no, you- no, Kev Mo didn't show up till 1993 when I got signed to, to OK. Gotcha. Yeah, I'm Kevin Moore, playing in Harvells. I got the Kevin Moore band on Sunday nights, you know. Uh, I got the blues thing on Monday at Miller Memory Lane, you know. And I'm playing uh, the other weeks with this this uh, uh, vocal group of brothers called the Rose Brothers. Mm-hmm. So I'm playing all over 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 towns, you know, over town, and uh, different gigs. Um, so things have picked up. I mean, now I'm making a living playing. Not a great one, but I'm making a living nonetheless. And there's no more flower delivery. So I get a call from a director for a play at the L.A. Theater Center. Uh, and uh, he asked me, did I play the blues? I said, yes. And he asked me, can I play the acoustic country blues? And uh, I had just heard it about maybe like three weeks ago and was freaking out and trying to figure out how to play it. So I got this gig at the L.A. Theater Center. And the guy hired me on the phone on my wow. word. <laughs> <laughs> and at that point, I could not play any country blues. You know? So, what did I do? I went down about the Robert Johnson box set. Uh, I borrowed a guitar from Chris Bennett, who had gotten me my record deal. <laughs> An acoustic, you know? And she, she, she let me use this, uh, uh, this acoustic she had. Um, uh, and, uh, I got to work, man. I started trying to detune that thing and fine tunes. I went and got a slide. Um, I got as far as I could get, and I went down to a McCabe's uh, in Santa Monica and got guitar lessons. Right. You know. And so I went on a cram course. I had three. I had a month to prepare for the rehearsal starting, and during rehearsal I had a month to rehearse. So in that two months, I was like crammed. Acoustic blues. Right. Well, you know, I mean, I think a lot of people have that moment in their life where where if if they don't have an opportunity, they they would never they would never study that intensely. You know, I mean, I yeah. I, I know I I've been in that situation where like my in my worst feeling I, I could ever have is if I go into a session or something unprepared or flat footed because yeah. I, I I hate that feeling and it and it, and it just it, it just drives you to to a, a point where you just go, I'm going to figure this thing out. If it if it if it kills me, I'm going to spend 24 seven on it. So tell me, like, when you were as a as a songwriter, um, you're a wonderful songwriter, and oh. when you were listening to BB King records and when you listen to all these all, all these all these records, do you ever think that BB would cut one of your songs? Did you ever think it would get that far? You know, and and I mean, just the people. You know, I, I, as I was doing some research on my friend. You know, people like B.B. King, Buddy Guy, Dixie Chicks, Joe Cocker, Robert Palmer, the list goes on. They've all covered your songs. You know, did you ever think that that it would ever 
escalate when you're playing the gigs at Harvell's under Kevin Moore and, and working in town? Would it ever scale to that point where you would be like this, this, this multi-Grammy award-winning force of nature? No, it never occurred to me. I, as far as I was concerned, by the time uh, in the 90s, I declared myself a determined flop. <laughs> That's a great album title. I'm going to steal that from you. That's my next record, Determined Flop. <laughs> I, 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 I acknowledge the fact that I, had, I was almost 40 years old and I had fucking flopped my life away. And so, okay. So I went, okay, fine. <laughs> you know? And I just embraced it. Right. You know, being a flop. And but you know that's what empowered me. Mm-hmm. I think that moment when I had to go, okay, either you, uh, you know, I mean, I, this time now, now understand, like I, I'm gonna I'm gonna insert thing another thing too. While playing and being a flop, I managed to go to a year of school at ITT and and become a starter electronics technician. And. Uh, I was I was about to look for a job, you know, and uh, I um, I went and I got a job. I got I had a job uh, interview with Roland, and they were about to hire me. Right. And I went home and thought. I told him, let me go home and think about it, because this is a big this is a big crossroad. This is this is Robert Johnson at the crossroads now. Right. This is a career shift that you may not come back from. You know, you're, yeah. you're committing to something completely different. And I'm go, I'm about to get a, a gig with a, mu- a company that's done music, electronics. It's all making you know, making sense, you know. So uh, I went back. I, t- I called up and said, "I'm not going to take it." You know, I said, "I said I'm going to stay in the music. I'm going to stay in, and I don't care what happens. Whatever happens, happens. I don't care. I love playing music, and if I flop and end up homeless downtown, so be it." Right. And then the floodgates open. People started calling me for gigs. I swear, man. All of that stuff, like the, the play, the gigs, things came out. I had I went tried to get an audition at Harvell's, and I didn't get the audition because I guess I didn't look right for the girl. She wanted she, she liked to hire cute boys. <laughs> I was I wasn't necessarily a cute boy, so. Um, but one of the cute boys that she hired for an audition called me to play guitar. <laughs> nice on the gig, you know, and she remembered that I had asked for a gig and she had said no. And uh, so I went in there and he, he was mumbling around and I saved his ass, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and she hired me. You know? So my question is like, like, you know, you've been around at that point now almost 15 years by the time Kev Mo, the artist, like when you got signed to OK and that like, like, oh, OK, now we all. Yeah, we're 30 at that point. <laughs> 30 you know, years. Well, you know, from the time you first recorded, you know. And so now you're like, you're, 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 you're saying to yourself, like, like, when, when did you realize that you made it? Because not a lot of people realize the moment that they hit. Because it took me about five years before I was like, because I've been the perennial underdog my whole career. And, and then all of a sudden people started to show up and I'm like, well, this is this is a little different than it was before. When did you realize? Like, was it the the, the time you you the first Grammy you won, or was it was it just like when your peers were like, oh my god, you know that that's Kevin Moore. Now he's Kev Mo the superstar. You know when when did that when did that that paradigm shift happen? At least in your mind, when you were going, hey, 
I did it. I set out to do this thing, and I did. I never made that shift. Um, I always kind of like to maintain that at any time, everything could go south. Right. You know, I don't want to get too wrapped up into, like, making it. I think I've, I would feel like I'd make it if I was playing arenas. Right. Then I feel like I really made it. Right now, what I have is a great life. I think I have a very secure life, and I'm very proud of the work I've done, and I'm proud of the gigs I do, and I feel very fortunate and very grateful. As far as feeling like I've made it or arrived, you know, later on in life, like now, I think I got it. If I had the ambition I had now earlier, I probably could have done better. But I think in my older age, when I got older, I became ambitious. Like now... I'm more ambitious than I ever was in my 20s. Right. What do you think that, why do you think that is? I mean, because I think, personally, in my opinion, I think you're singing and playing and writing as good as you've ever, ever, ever done. I, it's just, you know, I mean, the, I, I watched you sing on Reese's, Reese Winans' record a couple of years ago, and I was like, wow, it, you know, it's like, it, it's like this perfect blend of seasoning and experience, but yet you still have that youthful enthusiasm for the music which is which is which is great what do you what, what do you think that the the ambition comes from at this I stage like, first I, I love i love music and what it is i think is where i come from musically my first musical experiences of listening to music was listening to my mother's record collection which was johnny mathis and nat king cole right and some jazz records jimmy smith right trying to get in there and i love johnny mathis's greatest hits Record, you know? Yeah, right. You know, I love the orchestration. I love the Nat King Cole records. And I, I just loved Latin jazz records like Mongo Santa Maria records and things like that. And and um so and then going into a calypso world, you know, of uh playing all calypso and then going to a songwriter world where I was like doing stuff new. And Papa John Creech's world was a rock world, you know. Right. Yeah. I I, I used to play loud as fuck. <laughs> I still do. I haven't, I, but I can't hear. Tell yeah. me, tell me about acting, because you've done a fair amount of acting that not not a lot of people know about. But you've oh, done. Man, you've, I'm not an actor. You know, I, I, I when, when someone calls me for an acting job, I cringe. But you're you're a character, and you're good yeah. because you you are who you are as advertised, and that's what all great actors are. They're, it's not a huge leap from who they are to the person they're playing. You just, you have a, you have a great personality and it comes on. So how, I mean, like the first time they called you for an acting gig, we were like, really? Well, I went down and I did it, but, but you know, I've memorizing lines. Right. Frightens me to, to death. Yeah. <laughs> right. Cause I, 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 I mean, I can't remember what I had for breakfast at the time. Yeah. <laughs> and I put you have the same thing every day. So what I really what I'm really most passionate about acting comes up and it's a great experience and um I've took classes and did some things like that throughout my life but what I love most about anything is songwriting that's what I really wanted to be was a songwriter because I figured I play okay guitar I'm an okay singer and I play a little bit of guitar I can stay out of the way and I can make up good parts but Songwriting was what I really loved. I really loved, I really, even in school, I loved English. I loved like really writing up stories. Right. You know, I loved that. And uh, I, I, was, I spent more time writing songs 
I would sit. I've I've, I've sat in my a room for months at a time, just writing songs. You know. I mean, I put, I put in a lot of hours. And then when I was over at A&M doing the demos, I heard a lot of great songs. I got to demo a lot of great songwriter songs. So really where it starts and ends for me is songwriting. And Kevin Moe is just an outlet for Kevin Moore to write songs. Right, right. And you're passionate about it. You know, and, and I think you're one of the great blues writers of all time, just, just me saying that out loud. Um, before we wrap up, I have a couple of curiosity questions because I've never experienced anything like this, and I've never asked you off 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 camera about yep. it. Okay, I have what you would call I have TSA pre and this and this uh, thing I signed up for years ago called Global Entry, which which yeah. fast tracks you through a security checkpoint in the in an airport because that's what we do up until yeah. March. We we are traveling traveling musicians. Yes. Compared to a normal TSA experience, how strict is the White House security checkpoint? Because you played for you, you played a gig for President Obama. How 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 strict was that getting into the White House with your I don't know your guitar or whatever you showed up with, but but was that like oh my God this is like a, a, another level just as a curiosity? Question. It's very similar. You have to wait longer. Right. <laughs> You have to wait. There's a little booth outside the White House entry, and they don't. You don't just walk up there and go like. You kind of got to stand out there for a while, <laughs> right? You know, and so, and everybody's status in life gets negated at that point. You're going to like, I'm I'm oh, kept. Oh, 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 don't you know who I think I am? They're like, you stand here, sir. You know, yeah. is it like that? Yeah. <laughs> Metal detectors, the whole nine. What was it? What, what was it like? Was it? Was it daunting to play for the president, or was it was it just like a gig? And you know, because I know he, he, he loves that kind of music. I played there twice, once for a thing called Red, White, and Blues. Right. And the one was um, uh, the the 50th anniversary of the uh, Endowment for the Arts that was started by Lyndon Johnson. And when I went there, man, the first time, what was amazing to me is that I remember. Obama was running and stuff like that, and uh, Norman. You ever see Norman, BB's old valet guy that hung with him all the time? Yes, <laughs> we all love Norman. <laughs> Norman. Norman took me aside one day, and he was sweet, man. He said, "Man," he said, "You know, when I was a little boy, my grandmother took me aside, and he said, he said, now you listen here, boy. You watch. One of these days, there's gonna be a black man in the White House, the president. You watch." Me. You watch, you know? Yeah. And he was so proud that he got to see that. Yeah. You know, that he lived long enough. And right. I don't think he lasted long after that, you know? And and my mother, from Hooks, Texas, you know, when I would go to see her and she'd be at their senior citizens activity place, you know, she'd have all her girlfriends and they'd be doing things and, and uh, They'd be all dancing with their Obama T-shirts on. Right. Know, all these uh, elderly African-American women who were so happy and so proud. That was the, probably the biggest thing. That was better than playing the White House. Right. And, you know, and, but I, when I played the White House, it was the scary thing was Michelle Obama. She is, like, awesome. <laughs> you know? Uh, I was I I played the the sound check 
and Obama was in there, and he came and listened to everybody. Jeff Beck's in there, and the Buddy Guy, and I'm playing that. But during the night when Michelle Obama came in, and I sat down there, and I'm about to play, I'm playing Henry. Mm -hmm. Because I wrote, that's about Taj Mahal, you know, solo, I'm playing the solo. Right. And I wanted to play Henry because Taj Mahal wasn't there. Right. So I wanted to be, make sure he was there. I right. brought him to the White House. Right. <laughs> you know? Uh, so she, it was just like, that was a moment of honor that I can't, because you're looking at his, you're looking at like your parents' history, you know, and a proud moment for all of them. And to be in the White House during that time was like just an honor. You know, anytime it's an honor, but like, you know, that was that was really cool. And and just to be in that thing. Did, was there at any point in time when you were when you about to step up to the mic, did you go, shit, I could have been working at Roland. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> it's no, like man, I think I think by the time I when I turned down the job at Roland, I think I grew up here that night. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and you just go, that's, like you said earlier, that's the crossroad. Yeah. Kev, I, 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 I can't thank you enough for doing this. Um, I, I just find, I find your, your, your adventure in music so intriguing because of how vast and how influential you've been, not only to myself, but so many other musicians, and the, the depth of interest that you have in all kinds of music. Um, I'm honored to call you my friend. And and I'm and I'm I'm honored you you were on this show and uh, thank you again for doing this. It's like it's it's been a, a real real treat and it's such a great perspective that you have on music. You just go, I'm Keb Mo and I just do what I do and and you've never you've never you've never changed and it's and it's 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 so it's so refreshing to see that. Well, I'm I'm glad to be on your show, man, because I mean, like you know, I've I've you know been around you a long time. We've been friends a long time, but you know. Talking about growing up here, I was I was a little hesitant. I, I called you, you know, and uh, I always wanted to work with you, you know. But yeah. I'm a little I'm a little gun shy about calling anybody to work because I never want to be too. that guy. Yeah, me too. I'm I, I I'm I'm very I'm very shy around people I, I respect and and admire because I, I don't want to be like like you said that guy go hey you know you mm. know even though I live in Hollywood I'm not Hollywood you know yeah Hollywood is high boy yeah but anyway man there's a lot more to these stories I really appreciate you digging them out and having me tell them and tell them because I told them before, but every time I tell them, it just really uh, kind of makes me go do inventory and check myself where I've been and what's possible yeah. for me. I love, I love the fact that I was unlikely to make it to like to make it and, and become acknowledged in my 40s, you know, but now I'm, I'm approaching, I'm 68, I'll be 69 this year, you know, the challenge now, I like to make it in my seventies. Right. You know, I like to I like to break the age barrier. Hey. I want to do something that's impossible that doesn't happen. You know what? One of the things about the music business in twenty twenty is there's no more rules anymore. There's no there's no like well if you don't make it by a certain age if you don't do it by a certain you know what people respond to great songs and conviction and authenticity and I mean you have all of that and and I I'm just putting it out there to the world. Um, that let's let's get 
let's get Kevin Mo a gig at Madison Square Garden for his 70th birthday. Let's let's <laughs> let's, let's, let's fill the, let's fill the room. Come on, we got to do that. That would be. I'll, that would be I'll, okay. I'm 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 happy to I'm happy to be the opening act if it helps. Then so. I then I feel like I made it. If that That's happened, right. there you go, Madison that Square would make Garden. Me feel like I made it on your 70th birthday. Kevin, yeah. thank you so much. Um, thank you very much. This has been another uh, episode of Live at Nerdville. Apparently, we have hats next week. So uh, <laughs> Rachel made hats, so I don't wear the, the same airport hat every week. But uh, thank you very much for watching. My guest has been the wonderful, the legendary, Grammy Award-winning Keb Mo. Thanks for watching. We'll see you all next week. <laughs>